Y'all remember the tsunami of 2010? Been almost two and a half years ago. It was October 25th. Um, what gets lost in that sometimes is part of what made that so catastrophic is that the warning system didn't work. They had set up buoys outside of the Indonesian islands. And the idea was that when those buoys, which since height, got to a certain height, it meant that the waves were too tall and they were supposed to signal back to the shore and say, tsunami or big waves, get away from the shore. Well, they couldn't figure out why they didn't work. And so afterwards, they went and did some investigating and they found that the buoys, some of them had drifted from where they were originally set, so the height difference wasn't as much as it would have been if they would have been where they originally were set. Some of them had become disconnected from where they were placed, and some of them, their sensors, just weren't working anymore. And so consequently, the Indonesian islands got no warning, and they lived in this false sense of security that they would receive the warning. You know, it's hard for us to imagine kind of in today's world being caught unexpectedly with a storm like we had last night because, I mean, it had been kind of predicted for three, four, five days. It didn't take for us, even for me, looking at the weather pattern, seeing it was going to be 73 degrees yesterday and it's going to be snowing tomorrow, that it doesn't take you long to see that there's some chance there. But... We expect warning kind of things. I expected that I went to bed last night and I slept pretty good for, until the warning hit because I knew it'll let me know. But if warnings fail, that's problematic. We've been in the book of Amos, and if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. And, and what happens in the book of Amos is kind of different than what happened with the tsunami. It's not that the warning system has failed. It's that the people have refused to listen. So there's a difference between the warning system failing and the warning system working properly and people just not doing anything about it. Um, I remember talking with Dr. Dockery at Union. And some of you remember a few years ago, um, it's been about five and a half years ago, that Union got hit pretty badly with a tornado, tore dorms down. And one of the most miraculous things out of all that is that nobody was injured. And I, I remember talking to him about it, just having a conversation. And Dr. Dockery said, well, one of the reasons is, Lyle, he said, we had had a tornado a couple of years before that, and some students didn't heed the warnings and came really close to getting injured. It wasn't near as bad of a tornado. So when it came time for this one, when the warning came, everyone responded. And so it's an important thing to heed the warning. Amos is giving out this call. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. In fact, what he says is, you've been told over and over and over and over again that judgment is coming, and yet you do nothing about it. You continue on with business as usual. Everything's like it's always been. No worries about that. And nothing gets done about it. And so he says, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, it's done. It's over. Time's up. In chapter 5, starting in verse 18, he's going to talk about this idea that the day of the Lord, this coming moment, is not what they expect it to be. Look at verse 18 of chapter 5. 
Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Let's talk about that phrase, day of the Lord, for a minute. That, that was a phrase that came to mean in the prophets, the judgment of the Lord, or the, the, the setting right of the Lord. Now, most New Testament scholars would put that with Jesus' ministry coming, and then ultimately with the second coming of Christ. The Jewish people thought, well, someday the Lord's going to ride in on his white horse, and he's going to destroy everything and set us Right. The age to come is coming. And so they had this vision of it. What's interesting is Amos is the first place it's mentioned chronologically in the Bible. This concept of the day of the Lord is first mentioned by Amos. But what he says is, you think it's a good thing. You're excited about it. You're looking forward to it. But what you don't realize is, Because of the way you're living and who you are, it is not going to be a pleasant day for you. In fact, he gives this this couple of things. First of all, he says it's going to be a day of darkness and not light. He gives this beautiful, not beautiful, but interesting picture. He says it's like a man escapes from a lion only to turn around and run smack dab into a bear. You think, whew, we got past that. And you turn around and there's a bear. Now, the point here is not which of those would you rather not see. The point is, neither one of them are good, right? I I don't ever want to, in the wild, come across a lion or a bear. Anybody want to do that? No. Mm -mm. Right? So you don't want either one of those. He says, or like a man who goes home and relaxes his hand against the wall... And a serpent comes and bites. I really don't want any snakes either. And I realize that the snakes aren't as formidable as a bear or a lion. But they might as well be when they come in contact with me. All right? And he says, it's a day of the Lord darkness and not light. Gloom with no brightness in it. He says it's going to be a day of despair and mourning. Woe to you that want it. It's a day of darkness. He was about to pass through their midst. And there's this kind of wordplay in this passage that means he wasn't going to pass over, he was going to pass through. Now, what's the significance of that? In Exodus, he did what? He passed over. In this one, he's going to pass through. The idea is that just as he brought judgment on the Egyptians, he is bringing it on the Israelites. It's a day of doom. There'd be no escaping it. There were no hiding places. Run from the lion and you meet the bear. Run to the safety of your house and the serpent is waiting on you. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. They want it. They're excited about it. And what they didn't realize is they were wishing their own demise. Now... There are reasons that it says that that's going to happen. It says that he lays out some reasons for that. And the first one is, is because of their hypocritical worship. I hate, he, he hits on this last week and he hit on it again today. I hate it. I hate despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. The peace offerings of your fat animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I won't even listen to them. 
He says, listen, you keep coming to the temple, you keep doing the thing, you keep singing the songs, you keep doing the ritual, but I don't want to hear it. I'm tired of it. Quit coming, quit doing it. And then he gives another. It's not just because their worship is hypocritical, but it's because they have a lack of concern for other people. One of the most famous verses in Scripture, the most famous verse in Amos, comes right next when he says, but let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He basically says, listen, you're not acting like people who are mine. You come and you declare that you're following me and you do the sacrifices and you sing the songs and you play the harp. And yet, you're not acting like people that are mine. The prophet's indictment was their lack of concern. This is a key verse in the book of Amos. It reveals God's concern for His people to be righteous in their character and in their conduct. No matter how much religious activity they participated in, they weren't loving their brother. They weren't loving their neighbor. Then he kind of looks back, reminded them of their relationship to God after he delivered them from Egypt. And God asked the Jews to give him faith, obedience, and love. But at Mount Sinai, after serving God, the people worshipped a calf. Our kids talked about that here Sunday morning. Luke came home and said, Dad, what is a calf? I said, well, it's like a baby cow. So they were, why was it gold? And I was like, well, he was picturing a live calf, cow being gold. And we had to have this whole discussion about that story. But that's a crazy story, isn't it? I mean, Moses goes up. He's gone for a little while. People are getting a little restless. They're waiting. They, we've been sitting here. We've been waiting. Moses isn't coming back. He is not coming back. We've got to do something about it. And, and Aaron, who ought to know better, well, y'all, let's get all our jewelry in here. Don't you love the explanation Aaron gives when they get back down? What, what did he say happened? Well, there was a fire. We threw our stuff in and out jumped this cow. And we started saying, this cow... They actually said, this cow delivered us from Egypt. Would you be a little perturbed if you were God? Angry? Righteous anger right there? He was, right? There was a lack of concern for others. They kept having the stuff, but it was all idolatry. He says, did you bring the sacrifices I asked you for 40 years? No. You started worshiping these other gods. You made images for yourselves. And so the time has come to go. Amos is speaking to Israel in a time when they were all trying to escape God. They thought they had a backup plan. They thought they could do kind of whatever they wanted to do, and then God would rescue them when they needed rescuing. God was their plan B. Y'all know who the greatest escape artist of all time is, right? Harry Houdini, right? Harry Houdini started with handcuffs, and then he went to straight jackets, and then he did these tightly sealed boxes, even to some of the most um, well-built safes that have ever been created. And after he was dead, a lot of his secrets came out, and one of his assistants said, the secret to Harry Houdini is, he said, I will never put myself in a situation I don't have control of and a way to escape. And there are a lot of Christians, and the Israelites were like this, thought they had it all figured out. We, we're doing the religious thing. We got that taken care of. We got all that set up. We're still doing our stuff on the side. But in the end, the day of the Lord's coming. God's going to justify us. He's going to take over. It's our 
thing in the back pocket. And what you see here is that God is constantly tracking Israel. And the more people walked away from him, the more he knew. As they tried to escape from repentance and personal and social unrighteousness, they got away from him as the lion, but they turned around and standing before them was the bear. Amos talks about the fact that they thought they were getting away, but they weren't. Now, what does that mean for us? A couple of things. First of all, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us at some point in our lives think we can run from God. Something happens or we do something and we think, well, I can just get away for a little bit. Or maybe well, we don't say it in that terms, but we, we start to, to, to venture off in areas we wouldn't normally go. Now, the perfect example of that in Scripture is a prophet who was told to go somewhere and he went the other way, right? Who was that? Jonah, right? In fact, when we get through with Amos next week, the next week we're going to spend a couple of weeks on Jonah. Just two weeks on Jonah. And that, that's part of where we're going. But you know the story of Jonah, right? God says go to Nineveh and he does what? He buys a ticket for a boat the other way. And one of the things you learn in there is that you have no place to hide. Right? No place to hide. Growing up, I heard about a, a guy named, uh, a boxer named Joe Lewis a lot. Joe Lewis was a great boxer from an earlier era. And I read a story this week about a, a fight he was going to have um, with a guy named Billy Kahn. And Billy Kahn was a boxer from Pittsburgh. And Joey Lewis was, or, um, Joe Lewis was um, getting ready to fight him. And, and Kahn had this particular fighting style where he would just run around the ring. Almost. And then he'd jump in and hit the guy and then start running again. And, and the boxers didn't like him. They were like, in that day and time especially, you just stood in front of the other guy and you just hit each other. You didn't dance around and move. The other boxers called this con kid the runner. So before Lewis had his bout with him, a sports writer asked him if he'd be able to beat him with that running technique. And Lewis answered just as straight as he could, said, he can run, but he can't hide. Right? Sometimes I think God looks at us, maybe not with a smirk on his face. He says, you can run, but you can't hide. Nowhere can you go apart from me. There's no escaping God. The psalmist wrote about this in um, one of my favorite psalms. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I get up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with everything there I do. There is, before there is a word on my tongue, you already know it. You have hedged me behind and before laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too much for me to understand. It is high. I cannot understand it. I mean, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence, from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you are there. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light are alike to you. You know one of the things that we discovered last night, in the middle of the night, electricity goes out. Is that it's dark. Right? 
I mean, our house was dark. We don't, we don't have, we used to have one of those things that you plugged into the wall and when the electricity went out, it automatically kicked on as a light, it had a battery. We don't have one of those. So it was dark. I mean, in our house, usually, I mean, we've got night lights in kids' rooms. We've got um, a light with the door cracked a little bit in the bathroom so nobody, you know, hurts themselves in the middle of the night and the refrigerator's got a little light at the uh, on it. The we've got uh, our internet stuff, you know, that's got the green lights flashing. I got clocks with lights on it. We got street lights coming into our windows. But last night it was just dark. In fact, when the storm was over, uh, we were I carried Ava back upstairs, and Ava we we were determined to get Ava to bed. Ava was not determined it was time to go back to bed. So I'm carrying her upstairs, and Susan's going to take her for a minute. And I hold Ava out to give her to Susan, and it was pitch black. I mean, talking, can't see your hand in front of your face. And Susan and I three times missed each other just trying to hand her to one another. Now, I didn't drop her, just trying to hand her, all right? Psalmist says, even when it's that dark, it's as if God has a spotlight on us. Nothing is hidden. Nothing at all. There's a guy named Francis Thompson who really thought he could run from God. He was raised in a Christian home, but he feared the cost of being a disciple. He even studied for the priesthood, then medicine, didn't make it in either one, because he was kind of, as he would say, lazy. In fact, the only thing he ever got out of study of medicine is he became addicted to narcotics. He would do anything he could to, to get a daily fix. He would uh, hold horses. He would clean the streets, sell matches, clean boots. And all the while, he was continually running from God. But what a lot of people didn't know is he had this hidden talent where he was able to put his words into poetry. And one day, he sent off to a newspaper publisher one of his points about God's pursuit of him. The publisher and his wife were so impressed, they began a search all over London for this anonymous poet. They had to find this man who had written the lines. When they found him, they saw a man broken in body and in spirit. He had no shirt under his coat. His worn shoes gave him little protection from the icy streets. He wore no gloves to protect his hand from the cold. What he had written expressed a sense of impossibility of escaping the inescapable God. Eventually, he became a Christian. It is now recognized as one of the great poets of English literature. He wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. It has gained immortal status because it expresses this. Here's what it says. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter... Of Vista's hope I sped and shot, precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. He had this sense that God was consistently chasing him. And the Israelites, God was saying, it doesn't matter how far you try to get away. Now, here's what's interesting. 
The place they tried to hide was in their religion. In their stuff. In doing the mechanisms and the rituals of their stuff. But God was not impressed with their pious songs. God was not impressed with offerings that were outward only. He demanded inward righteousness. And He demanded that they act like children of His. Now here's one of the things. In the end, what they failed to realize is that God chasing them in their unrighteousness was a symbol of His love. I mean, the truth is, when Jonah said, I'm not going to Nineveh, I'm getting on a, on a boat and I'm leaving, God could have said, see ya. But what did God do? He didn't let him go. What did he do to him? He found him, right? How do we know that? First, there was the storm, right? And the only way to get rid of the storm was the crew had to do what? Throw him over. See, a lot of people think that the fish was judgment. I'm not so sure the fish wasn't salvation. Right? The judgment was throwing him overboard. The salvation was he got swallowed by a fish. Now, that's a strange way for salvation, but God pursued him. Now, here's what's interesting about that. God pursued him because of who Jonah was, but also because of who the Ninevites were. It wasn't just that he was after Jonah. He was after Jonah for the purpose of the Ninevites. The Israelites, the easiest thing for God to do when the Israelites disobeyed him was not make them spend 40 years in the desert and then wait and go. It was to say, well, that's it. We'll start over. We'll do it again. Do you know how many times in history God probably should have said, we're just starting over? Right? I mean, he did once with Noah. But how many more times has there been when he thought, boy. Many times I think he has to look at America right now and go, I, the American church, we just got to start this thing over. But he continues to pursue us because he loves us. It's like the scorned lover who is told, I don't ever want to see you again, and persistently goes after anyways. Now, now to think of God, some people say, to think of God as a scorned lover is kind of a, that's uh, uh, a strange thing. But not really if you think about the book of Hosea, because the book of Hosea is all about God being a scorned lover. Who's... Spouse has gone into adultery. And God continues to pursue. The fact that God meets us at the path of every wrong path, every shrine to a false god, every misguided loyalty, every expression of self-serving righteousness ought to be comforting. What if He didn't care enough to pursue us? T.S. Eliot once wrote, At the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So he looks at him and he says, listen, I'm coming after you. Now, what he's going to tell the Israelites is, and I've come after you over and over and over again, and you have been completely indifferent to it. He says, woes to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. One of, a couple of things to note about that. You remember Sunday... We talked about the woman at the well. The woman at the well, what was the debate she wanted to have with Jesus about where worship was acceptable? What were the two places? The mount in Samaria, right? And in Jerusalem, okay? 
What is in the Old Testament when they say Zion? I know when we say Zion, we think we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We think heaven, okay? What was Zion to them? The city of God. The temple which was in Jerusalem, right? Here's what I, you know how the Bible just works together? Isn't this amazing? What does he say? He says those people that are worshiping, they think that Jerusalem is the place to worship. They're at ease. They think they're secure. The people that are in the mountain in Samaria think they're okay worshiping there. They're at ease. They think they're secure. Guess what? Neither one of them are. Another thing to think through there is these people had no clue that judgment was about to come. They felt completely secure. The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. It says, even your leaders think that everything's all right. In fact, there's this interesting little phrase in verse 3 when it says, O you who put far away the disaster day, bring near the seat of violence. So think about what he says. He says, those of you that keep putting the day farther and farther off, what you're actually doing is bringing it closer and closer to happening. You keep saying it can't happen here. It won't happen here. Nothing's going to happen here. And yet it gets closer and closer and closer. And then he talks about their indulgence. Woe to you who lie on beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments, who drink wine in bowls, and anoint themselves with finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. He says, you have indulged yourself with everything imaginable. You have luxurious furniture that you lounge on and you eat the best meat all the time. And yet, there are people that are suffering all around you. The wealthy enjoy elegant feast, drinking in abundance with beautiful music and expensive perfumes. And the poor, who they exploited to get there, suffer in spite of what they're doing. One, one thing I want you to get here is, this passage doesn't suggest that just... Having a good meal or listening to music is bad. In fact, it referenced David here. David was praised for making instruments and developing them. It's not, that's a bad thing. Don't make any more new instruments. But David used his instruments to do what? Glorify God. Praise the Lord. Right? These are just sitting around to indulge themselves. He says, and the biggest thing is, they don't have a care in the world that my nation is crumbling. The Lord says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and will deliver up the city and all that is in it. In verse 7, he's already told them that those people are the ones that are going to go away, that they're going to be taken away, and it's not going to be good. And he tells them that the cause of all of this the root cause of it all is that they have rejected the Lord. The pride of Jacob is that they have done it on their own. And verse 9 tells us that if ten ruin remain in a house, they shall all die. And if someone comes and asks about who's in there, don't say anybody else is in there because if they're in there, they'll die. We must not mention the name of the Lord. And he tells them, that the Lord commands the house shall be struck down in fragments and the house into bits and 
horses run on rocks, and you've turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You look at these and say, have we not done this by our own strength? But behold, I will rise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, and they shall oppress you for as far as you can see. Amos comes to the people, and he is not one that has a real positive message. In fact, we're going to finish his book next week, and in chapters 7 through 9, he has visions for the people, and five of those visions are of judgment, and one of those is of a glorious restoration. But Amos is one of these that says, you have to understand the full reality of what you've done before you can ever begin to appreciate the glory of the grace that may be down the line for those people that are following the Lord. The time had stopped for the, I'll give you one bit of bad news and five bits of good news. The time had stopped for, I'm going to give you lots of sugar to take a little bit of medicine. It is, it's time to just take it straight. Now, it didn't affect the people, and that's the sad thing about the books that we read. Maybe some it did, but overall, Assyria comes and crushes them. The witness that they have for the Lord is effectively destroyed. And it's because they would refuse to listen to what he said. Now here's the call that we have in America to think about. And we've talked about this the last few weeks. You read through the book of Amos. And it is frightening to me the parallels that happen between the people of that day and our own. What's dangerous for us in that, though, and we've talked about this a little bit, is then to equate the people in Amos with the people of our culture instead of equating the people of Amos with us. You remember that first part of Amos where he goes around to all the cities and they're amen and that's right, get them, they need it, and then you get right back to Israel and they're like, oh, for us, we have to take a long Hard look at us, not at the culture around us, not at the people that we know, not at the church down the street or the people in the neighborhood that don't go to church or the people that are living in what we term to be complete opposite of what God would intend. We need to look at us. Amos only told him to look at the people around him to heighten the fact that their sin was worse because they knew better. They were more responsible. So the question that we ask is, is our heart where God's heart intends to be? In the book of Amos, God's heart was that his people would live a righteous life, taking care of those who couldn't take care of themselves, and that they would be a beacon for his name in a land around them that were without God. That heartbeat hadn't changed so much. In fact, what's interesting is if you trace from Genesis through the book of Revelation, what we see is that God has the same mission from Genesis to Revelation, and that is to declare the glory of his name and to develop a people for himself that will worship him and serve him and live in accordance to his word. And as you go through that whole passage, you see in the Old Testament he used families to do that, but in the New Testament he has selected the church to do that. I was reminded today again by a quote, it is not so much that God has a mission for his church, but that God has a church for his mission. And the question is, are we being faithful to being the church that God called us to be to fulfill the mission that he has? May we be a people that when the warning sounds occur, we won't hit the snooze button and roll over. 
but that we will get up and take action in order to see his name glorified and his people restored. Let's pray.